Hello, my name is Nina Fitzgerald, and I'm an IP and media partner at Ashurst. In today's episode, I'm joined by Sanjay Wavde, who is a partner in our tax practice, to talk about the recent announcement by the Australian government of a patent box for eligible corporate income associated with new patents in the medical and biotechnology sectors, and potentially also the clean energy space. We will share our thoughts on this announcement, compare it to international patent box regimes, and also consider how this intersects with the IP challenges faced when identifying the Australian component of income and expenses. Lastly, we really want to seek some input from all of the listeners regarding this new regime and what the government should be aware of when designing it. If you would like to give us your feedback on the discussion paper, please email either Sanjay or myself. Our email addresses are our names with a dot in the middle, so nina.fitzgerald or sanjay.wavde at ashurst.com. Sanjay, thank you for joining me today. For the tax novices like me, can you give me a brief summary of what a patent box is? Yeah, no problems, Nina. Look, a patent box is like a fancy tax term for a regime that allows a concessional tax treatment apply to profits derived from eligible IP, usually in the form of a lower tax rate or a percentage deduction applied to qualifying IP income. I actually did some research to find out where the name patent box uh, derived from, and I found out that it actually, because the regime is usually elective, it arises because you tick a form on your tax return saying that you want to claim the, the patent box concession, and that's the patent box. So what has been announced for Australia? It was in the May 2021 federal budget speech where the Treasurer's announced that Australia will introduce patent box for corporate income associated with patented inventions in the medical and biotechnology sectors commencing from 1 July 2022. There's also the possibility that the patent box might be extended to renewable energy. Budget announced that there would be a consultation process for the design of the regime, and that regime has just kicked off with the release of a discussion paper by the Treasury. Submissions and feedback on that discussion paper have been requested by the 16th of August. It's, it's quite a short discussion paper, but there's a lot of questions, you know, some, you know, 20, nearly 30 questions in that discussion paper. The, I mean, the broad policy aims of the regime, I, I guess, are sort of twofold. Uh, one is that Obviously, the intention is to encourage companies to try and, you know, to base their medical and biotechnology R&D operations in Australia and commercialise that innovation in Australia and to retain the ownership of eligible patented inventions in Australia. Now, from a, from a tax perspective, the ownership of IP is, a, is quite a big thing in, in the global tax landscape. And Australia is one of many countries that have been trying to just combat the migration of valuable intellectual property rights outside of Australia. So there might be IP developed in Australia, but then multinational companies might seek to you know, migrate outside of Australia to another jurisdiction. Um, there's been transfer, there's transfer pricing rules, there's been tax avoidance alerts published by the ATO and a range of other Sort of measures that the OECD has tried to take to combat that kind of behaviour, and and this patent box regime is possibly you know a, a reason why people wouldn't try and migrate IP offshore but would want to keep it in Australia. And I guess from a broad government perspective, 
having IP in Australia and research and development activities in Australia also promotes jobs in, and the economy more generally, as well as promoting Australia as an innovative country on the world stage. The government has had these objectives for a while, but the concept of trying to achieve this through a patent box is new to Australia. However, I understand that this is not a new concept abroad and there have been patent boxes overseas for some time. Is the regime being proposed here comparable with what we see overseas? Look, I think in some respects, yes, and but in many respects, no. So as you say, yeah, the patent, patent boxes have been around for, for quite a while and the UK introduced their patent box regime back in 2013 and, and there are now around 20 countries in the world that have them. So we're, we're you know, pretty late to the party on this one. The regime that has been proposed is also, I mean, on its face, it looks, you know, pretty good, but there's a 17% concessional tax rate on the patent box profits, which compared to the, you know, Australia's corporate tax rate of between 25 and 30%, uh, depending on the type of tax paying company you are, looks, you know, on its face pretty attractive. That's almost a 50% tax rate for some companies. But when you look at patent boxes around the world, where you've got Ireland at 6.25% and the Netherlands at 9% and the UK at 10%, it's it's not, you know, that attractive, although it should be kept in mind that if the G20 global minimum corporate tax rate of 50, 15% is ultimately implemented, then we might see other jurisdictions having to raise their rates closer to the Australian rate. Um, the second thing that makes Australia's uh, patent box regime potentially uncompetitive is that it is quite limited. It's, it's, as I said, limited to the medical and biotechnology sectors and potentially the clean energy sector, depending on how the consultation regime, uh, how, how the consultation goes. But other regimes aren't, aren't anywhere near as restrictive as that. And so it's not apparent why Australia has necessarily decided to limit the patent box to just those, you know, those very narrow sectors and hasn't gone for a broader approach comparable with other regimes. Um, the other thing that will be very important in designing Australia's uh, patent box regime is how that benefit will ultimately flow through to shareholders because, as you know, the Australia is one of the few countries in the world that has an imputation regime where a credit for corporate tax is given to the shareholders um, who ultimately then pay tax at their own marginal marginal rates on corporate distributions. If what we're going to have is Australian companies paying tax at a 17% rate, um, which sounds good, but then the shareholders have to top up to their own marginal rates on distribution of those profits. It's a regime that may not necessarily be attractive to Australian companies with Australian shareholders and, and maybe more attractive to uh, foreign-owned foreign Australian companies, which is a bit counterintuitive. That's fascinating, trying to analyse the flow and effect based on Australia's quite unique corporate tax. And it seems the tax office is trying to consider these issues based on the discussion paper that's been released. As you mentioned, it's quite short, but there are certainly a number of questions in there really seeking to understand how best to design the regime. It is great that there's an opportunity to file submissions, but there isn't a huge amount of time to respond. So Sanjay, based on my review of the discussion paper, there's a significant focus on what the requirements will be from a record keeping and compliance perspective. 
and trying to keep things simple. What is so difficult about all of this? Yeah, so I suppose on its face it sounds fairly straightforward that you're you're really just trying to give a 17% tax rate to income derived from patents based on um, how much research and development has been carried out in Australia. So it all sounds very simple in concept. I guess the thing to remember is that companies will, uh, you know, very, very complex carrying out R&D. They'll have all sorts of different revenue sources, all sorts of different R&D projects. So where it gets very difficult is trying to track and allocate income and expenses between different types of patented inventions different and other types of IP that don't necessarily qualify. So on the expense side, I would expect that taxpayers would generally have systems in place to track expenses to qualifying projects because of the R&D tax offset. So people should already have those kind of, I guess, record keeping systems in place. And you can see in the discussion paper, there's a lot of focus on how much people will be able to use existing mechanisms for tracking expenses based on the R&D system. Where I think it will get more difficult is on the income side, because there isn't really any mechanism for taxpayers to track income and allocate it to particular patented inventions. The other thing is that because a product can have multiple patents and multiple different types of IP embedded within it, some of which might have been developed in Australia, some of which might have been developed by a foreign affiliate, some of which might be you know, might be licensed from a third party, and then you sell the product, you're going to need to have some mechanism to allocate the income to the patented invention that is qualified for the concession. Um, and then the idea also is that you're only supposed to qualify for the concession for the income from the patent and not income from that are generated from other things like brand, marketing, manufacturing, those kinds of things. So you're going to have to have a mechanism for breaking down one income stream into a whole bunch of different income streams to allocate to the qualifying patent. I think that will be quite quite difficult and quite challenging and that's what I think a lot of the focus of the discussion paper is about is is how how are we going to do that how is that going to be implemented in the way that is going to make compliance as straightforward as is possible and then even when you've done that you've done that allocation then you need to try and work out what is the qualifying component of that revenue stream when you when you overlay all that complexity of trying to narrow in on a particular Offered element that is eligible and take out all the other stuff, I think it's going to be quite difficult to design a, a simple system. And just looking at it from an IP perspective, there seems to be a number of challenges with the income analysis. First, the one you identified, where there will be a product which is comprised of many elements, some of which are patented and some which are not. So applying this to the clean energy industry, for example, if we look at a solar panel, there'll be technology to attract the sun, separate technology which converts the rays to electricity. So there'll be another potential patentable invention which describes how you would fix that solar panel to the roof and even some waterproofing technology. And it may be that one aspect of that product meets the requirements of a patent, that is, it's inventive and it's new, 
but the remaining aspects don't qualify for patent protection, maybe because they've been used in the industry for so many years and they're all well known. And in addition to all of these elements, there'll also be the goodwill for the brand, which will contribute to the income derived for that product. So there'll certainly be some challenges in determining how you divide up each component which attributes to the income derived and assess what proportion of that income for the product is contributed to by the patented technology by itself. It seems to be a very artificial process to try to identify just that income. A second challenge that I can see arising, particularly in the case of pharmaceutical patents, is that there are often multiple patents on the same product. So firstly, you tend to have a compound patent for the pharmaceutical, and that can be for 25 years in some circumstances because of the patent extension regime we have in Australia. And then there can be follow-on patents. So usually we see at least a formulation patent for a particular tablet or capsule or the best way of administering that pharmaceutical. We see process patents for the way you make the pharmaceutical as well as second medical use patents being where you've worked out that it can be used for the treatment or prevention of other diseases. So each of these patents could last for 20 years but they all effectively relate to the same product being the same pharmaceutical. So one issue which will need to be addressed is whether you can keep claiming that lower income for the same product for longer than 20 years because of the additional patents that have been granted. So these will all be issues that will need to be addressed. And I guess one place to look for how we might address these is overseas jurisdictions. How has this complexity been dealt with abroad? Yeah, so obviously all all these other jurisdictions have had to grapple with some of that complexity. Um, And there are a couple of different methods that have been used in other jurisdictions to try and allocate income to patents. But I think the thing to to also recognise is that because there there is a very concessional regime here, it's one of those areas where the OECD has stepped in to put some parameters around what is able to be done and what's not able to be done. So in that respect, I think it's it's useful to look at the UK's experience. So the UK originally started with a, I guess, a fairly administratively simple in the sense that originally their patent box regime allowed patent box profits to be calculated using some approximations and largely formulaic approaches to apportioning profits based on you know, simple ratios of you know, relevant IP income to total income. That was done to deal with some of the administrative complexity and compliance burden that would arise from trying to get down to a very granular level of trying to track income attributable to particular patents or particular patented products. But more recently, they have had to move to a what's called a streaming approach. And that does require a much more granular way of allocating income and expenses on a just and reasonable basis to particular income streams, which is where it gets its name of streaming. And that really has been driven by the OECD requirements to get down to a much more I guess, granular level of allocating income and expenses. So if I was to guess how Australia would go, as much as it you know, would probably want to go down the, the least administratively burdensome approach as it possibly could, it's you know, probably likely to have to go down this more complex streaming approach that 
the UK has now had to start using. That's how I would expect Australia to, to implement their regime as well. In terms of how you then go about, you know, backing out other types of profits that might be, you know, embedded in a particular income stream like brand and marketing and, you know, other other profit elements. Again, that, that will be interesting to see how that is done. Uh, I think other jurisdictions have, have done it on a, again on a fairly formulaic approach based on what would be a routine return or to try and back out those elements to arrive at the arrive at the profit that is attributable to the patent itself while others have obviously gone down again a more granular approach it'll be interesting to see which way Australia goes in in that respect as well as to how they actually then remove from the particular income streams that have been identified the other profit elements the other aspect of it is trying to then allocate the profit to the R&D that's actually being carried out in Australia, which I, I would imagine that, that that's something that we should be able to implement relatively readily because we already do track R&D expenditure to particular patented products or particular you know, R&D um, projects. So hopefully letting that fraction is something that can be implemented in a relatively straightforward manner. But you can see that there is a lot of complexity here. And it's interesting that reading some of the literature in other jurisdictions that because there is so much upfront cost in designing and purchasing systems that enable you to track income and expenses and carry out the relevant calculations and because the regime's elective as i said a lot of companies particularly startup companies that don't have you know the money to be able to invest in these kind of compliance mechanisms have just decided to not elect into the patent box regime, which is really interesting because it's, it is such a concessional rate, but it's that they view it as just not being something that they can spend the money on to set up all those expensive compliance tools. So I think anything we can do to keep to use existing systems and processes and keep the compliance burden to a minimum will be something that makes our regime comparatively more attractive than other other regimes. And I'm sure the government is wanting to encourage startups and the creation of new technology in Australia. And so we'd be keen to avoid companies electing out of the regime because of its complexity. But besides the difficulty in setting up ways of attributing costs to the ultimate income, are there any other reasons why a company might not elect into the regime? So one, one that I've already mentioned is, is the franking credits. A lot of Australian companies like to pay fully frank dividends to their shareholders, whereas if effectively they're only paying tax at 17% rate and that rate is then required to be topped up at the shareholder level because the companies aren't paying fully frank dividends. And I think that may be something that's not particularly attractive to Australian companies which are owned by Australian shareholders. Um, there are a couple of other things that I think will be interesting to see how the government designs this, particularly with respect to startup companies, I think. One of the other major attractive policies that the government has for research and development at the moment is the research and development tax offset, which generates um, tax offsets, which in many cases are refundable tax offsets, meaning immediate cash flow you know, for the business generated from the offset. And that offset's currently pegged to the corporate tax rate of 25 to 30%, depending on what type of taxpayer you are. So it's not clear whether the, uh, whether the offset will then change if you elect into the patent box regime to be pegged to the 
patent box rate. And if it is, then that does raise a real question for some companies, particularly startups, who might benefit from the higher extra cash flow from a refundable offset pegged at the higher rate. So would you rather have immediate cash flow from a higher refundable tax offset, or would you rather have a lower refundable tax offset with the prospect of having your income taxed in the future at a lower tax rate? The other thing is tax losses. In other jurisdictions, what we're seeing is that tax losses from uh, patent box activities are quarantined against income from patent box activities. So again, obviously in, in a startup phase, when you're doing research and development, you're incurring losses. Again, there'll be a real question about, you know, if a company has income from, you know, other projects, would you prefer to use those losses immediately at a 25 or 30% rate or hold on to those losses and pay income, pay income tax on your other profits? Again, in the hope of, you know, using them against patent box income and then paying tax in the longer term at a 17% rate. So there are a few questions, I think, about how this regime interacts with all those other things as to whether, you know, you would prefer to have, you know, access to other offsets or losses at a, at a effectively a, a higher effective tax rate now than wait into the future to get that set that, you know, I guess the 17% tax rate. And then that's certainly something which I'd like to hear, hear from, uh, from you with your experience about how long might companies have to actually wait to be able to get the benefit of this regime. If an application for a standard patent is only filed in Australia, it will typically be examined within six to 12 months. But then there can be objections by the patent examiners through the examination process, which will need to be responded to. And even if a patent is ultimately cleared by the patent examiners, third parties may oppose the patent prior to registration, further delaying the grant of the patent. So it can be several years before a patent is granted. And it may ultimately not be granted if it does not pass examination or a third party is successful in their opposition. And this process may be delayed even longer if the patent is applied for through the Patent Cooperation Treaty. This process allows you to file an application designating a number of countries that you might ultimately pursue registration. And this permits you to delay the time that you need to go through the examination process in Australia up to 31 months and can be 30 months in other countries. And the reason to do this is often you need to file a patent so early in the research and development process that you don't actually know whether it's going to be a product or process that you're going to be able to or that you're going to want to commercialise. And this is because in order for patents to be granted, the invention needs to be new and inventive. And often people need to do extensive studies so that they can confirm that it's going to be a successful product or process. But you'll need to file your patents before you do the study to avoid somehow invalidating your patents through the publication of the results or even the conduct of the study. So that means there can be several years before you even enter patent examination. So really the patent process is lengthy and it is uncertain, but even if you're ultimately granted a patent, there remains the prospect of a challenge to the patent's validity and revocation of the patent if the challenge is successful. What happens to the income in these circumstances? Is there a clawing back process if the patent is successfully challenged and ultimately revoked? Yeah, I think that'll be a really important design feature as to whether that will be the case. Because I can imagine that having the possibility of a patent being 
challenge possibly for many years, that risk will still be there, that that will be unacceptable where you know, a company that has had their patent granted by the patents office and has been claiming the lower tax rate and then for, for years on end is exposed to an additional 13% tax rate, assuming it's a 30% taxpayer if the patent is successfully challenged. I just, I just feel that that would be, you know, it doesn't give you any real certainty of your tax position. Obviously, if the patent is successfully challenged, you know, you would then stop claiming the, the concessional rate, but up until it is successfully challenged, you would hope that the, the government, you know, won't seek to call back the, the benefit. And I think in other jurisdictions, I think, I think the UK doesn't um, have any explicit callback mechanism, but, but, the, but the, you know, the concession stops being available after that obviously the patent is successfully challenged. The other thing that the UK has done to deal with this lengthy patent approval process is to allow profits from the patent pending stage to qualify for the concession not during the period while the patent is pending, but once the patent is granted, then you can sort of go back and, and look at all the profits that were accruing while the patent was pending and fold that into future years to, to claim the benefit on those profits. Because the way the UK does their uh, patent box is not actually granting a 17% tax rate or, or, or their 10% tax rate on the income, they actually do it by way of a deduction from the income to arrive at effective an effective tax rate of 10% on the patent box income. So they, the way they do it is they, yeah, they, they do in effect allow the profits from the patent pending stage to, to, to get the benefit. I think, again, that'll be an important design feature of our regime as to how they do and hopefully they do grant the concession for profits which are accruing while patents are pending. I think the other thing that will, is quite interesting, looks like the government wants to only grant this concession to patents which either are registered in Australia or would, would be registered as patents in Australia um, under Australian patent law rather than just allowing you know, patents which are registered anywhere in the world necessarily to qualify for the regime. And I'm wondering what the rationale for that might be. I certainly don't think that would be an easy inquiry. I mean, the nature of patent law is that every jurisdiction has its own application of the principles and its own precedence. And while in the past we might have said somewhat confidently, a patent that's been granted in the UK is likely to be granted here, that position has certainly changed since Britain became part of Europe. And maybe we maybe it'll go back to changing now that we've had Brexit and Britain's not so bound to follow the European decisions. But there are certainly very different principles of patent law in countries like the US and France and even the UK now. So you'd need to get legal advice as to the scope of your claims and the nature of your patent specification and whether or not that patent would be granted here. And what we typically see is that patents applied for all over the world have their scope of their claims different in every country when they're granted because they're amended during the examination process so as to be compliant with the law in a particular jurisdiction. So I think practically speaking, that would not be an easy task to achieve. But I think if one of the requirements that I understand is a requirement is that you have to have done the research and development in Australia, hopefully that analysis would not be necessary. 
because you would expect that the company would then apply for a patent in Australia and therefore either be granted or not granted the patent in Australia. So you wouldn't have the situation where you're relying on a foreign patent in order to claim the deduction here. And I think if we're talking about research and development in Australia, or if manufacturing is happening in Australia, or there's any intention to exploit the invention in Australia, then the company would definitely need to at least consider and should definitely apply for a patent in Australia itself so that there's no need to rely on that foreign patent. And so I understand, Sanjay, that there's been an approach abroad to deal with this issue so that there is no kind of separate analysis of the scope of the claim. Is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's right. So, for example, in, in the UK, they have whitelisted particular, particular countries where the UK would just accept that a patent is sufficiently comparable to the UK regime for the UK to grant their patent box concession. And that's, that's actually a pretty common thing that's done in the, in the tax law in other areas where we have you know, rules which say that, look, these tax systems are sufficiently comparable to Australia's tax system that will, you know, just, you know, we'll, we'll recognise it as being, you know, sufficiently comparable to, to attract either a, con- a concessional treatment. So I was wondering if that kind of whitelist approach might also work here. So if Australia was to, you know, list, you know, particular countries to, to qualify without needing to do that, you know, that extra analysis that you were talking about. That would certainly provide more clarity and would shortcut the process if there was such an acceptable list. I think the challenge for Australia will be determining what countries fall on that white list because of the differences with our patent laws and those which exist abroad. But surely the government could do that analysis and decide some countries which we might follow. For example, the UK might be one, particularly now that Brexit has happened, that would be on such a white list and adding New Zealand equally could fall on that list. But it would be interesting to see if the US made that list because they do have very different laws to us on a number of patent validity issues. Yeah, you know, as far as I'm aware, other jurisdictions don't limit their patent boxes in quite the same way that we're proposing to. Do you have any, any insights as to why the government might have decided to choose you know, medical and biotech and potentially clean energy and not to expand it to other areas? I think it's interesting that they've limited it in this way. The Australian government is certainly trying to increase innovation in the country and research and development happening onshore and to avoid the loss of talent abroad to places such as the US and the UK, as well as Europe. The medical and biotechnology area, we already have a strong industry, particularly in medical devices. We've got some really strong homegrown companies, as well as some of the big international players that do research and development here. But it's also an industry that really benefits from patents. I mean, we see the medical and biotech companies really relying on patents as part of their commercialization strategies. And so really, this is a key way of rewarding those companies. Equally, clean tech will utilize patents, potentially not to the same extent that they're relied on in the medical and biotechnology space. And I think the government really explained in the discussion paper that they have these Paris targets that they're seeking to achieve in the renewable energy space. And so they need to boost innovation in this area as a way to kind of achieve those targets. I think another area we see Australia really trying to put itself on the map is in the fintech space. But there are real challenges with getting patents in the financial services area and the intersection between finance and technology. And a lot of these patents are ultimately being found to be invalid. Either those patents aren't granted because they're objected to in the examination process or they're ultimately revoked. 
So perhaps the government's a bit wary of including fintech at this stage and because perhaps patents aren't really the right vehicle to promote innovation in that area. Yeah, and I can imagine also that the, given the, the state of the budget as well at the moment that the government is keen to try and target the patent box to those areas where they think that they can get the most bang for their buck. You know, even that decision to expand it to the clean energy sector, which as you said, it is an area which uses patents. I imagine that any decision to do that will also need to have regard to the, you know, the current state of the budget. Absolutely, that makes sense. And so I think what we really wanted to ask you, Sanjay, is of our clients and our listeners, is what are your thoughts on this discussion paper and in particular the issues we've discussed today? Should the patent box regime be limited to medical, biotechnology and life sciences patents? Or should clean energy also be included? Or are there any other areas where Australia should be promoting itself and encouraging innovation through a patent box regime? And we're also really interested to hear about existing systems and record keeping within businesses and how they'll cope with tracking eligible expenses and income. And finally, the time taken to prepare for the start date. Will there be enough time to prepare for the regime, which is meant to start on the 1st of July, 2022? Will all the necessary record keeping be in place in order to achieve what needs to be achieved by July next year? There's one other thing that I did want to ask our clients for as well, and that is particularly in relation to, uh, to you know, the, I guess the R&D credits and the tax losses and the franking credits. What sort of design features would be really important for our clients to make this regime attractive when you take into account those other, I guess, those other concessions and those other tax rules that are already in place, and the fact that you know ultimately, whether you whether you actually ultimately benefit from a patent and get it registered is inherently uncertain. How can the government design a regime which links all of those different things together in such a way that is that it's going to be attractive for for you to actually elect into this regime rather than continue with what you already have? Fabulous. Well, thank you very much, Sanjay, for your time. It's been great to talk with you. Yeah, thanks, Nina. I really enjoyed hearing about uh, in the patent process as well. It was really interesting and enlightening to, to get an understanding of all of that. Thank you for listening. To hear more Ashurst podcasts, including our mini-series on all things AI, including AI patents, visit ashurst.com forward slash podcast. To ensure you don't miss future episodes, subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. While you are there, please feel free to keep the conversation going and leave us a rating or review. Thanks again for listening and goodbye for now.